So Ruth 4. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, let tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon. I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring of the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron feathered Ram, Ram fathered Amidadab, Amidadab fathered Nachshon, Nachshon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Government is frustrating. We don't really want government in the end. We want someone, that is, we want a person. Government will not exist in heaven, in the way that we think of it now, at least. Politics is a result of the fall. God has given government his stamp of approval, but human-led, or merely human-led, perhaps, 
government will cease at the coming of Christ. He will be king, yes, but just as much king as a husband, or just as much king as a father. That is, in these, love is primary and government secondary. This kingship will be the start of a family and the consummation of love. In the end, we don't want government. We want a person. At the time of Ruth, there was something like a shell of a government in Israel, and it barely existed at that, at the time of the judges, a time of chaos according to human eyes. However, Moses had foretold that a good king was to arrive, one of God's selection, who would end the chaos of Israel forever and give them rest. This prophecy of a king and the chaos of the time has apparently been in the background of Ruth. But Ruth 4 shows that the fulfillment of the coming of the good Redeemer King is really the whole point of this book of Ruth and why it was written to show that God works for good, even amid what looks like chaos and even what seems contradictory to God's plans, what transpires around us. God's will is never in danger, even when we would think that we have frustrated him. His king is coming and accomplishes what he bids. So let's go into Ruth 4 in earnest. First, the accomplishment of Naomi and Ruth's redemption. The accomplishment of this redemption that we have been waiting so long for in Ruth and the marriage of Ruth, which we've been waiting for since chapter 3, was an immediate object to Boaz. He must first secure the right of the Redeemer King, as we spoke of last time in Ruth 3. That is, there is someone who's above him in the right of the kinsman Redeemer, which is Goel in Hebrew, which is much simpler to say. So just remember, Goel means kinsman Redeemer as I go along. This redemption is accomplished in three steps. Very briefly said here, then we'll go into detail. First, the other no-name Goel is sought, found, and offered the right of redemption. This is verses 1 through 5. Second, the legal rejection of that right of redemption by the no-name kinsman redeemer and the taking up of that right by Boaz, the next in line, Goel. That's 6 through 11. And third, blessings from the people. And finally, Boaz actually takes Ruth to be his wife. That's verses 11 through 13. We begin Ruth 4 at the first step in that redemption plan, finding the other Goel with, uh, with another, it just so happens, chance event in the very beginning. Ruth 4, or rather Ruth in general, has been filled with these chance, quote-unquote, happenstance events, and another happens here. The next day after this last night's strange but loving, careful interaction between Boaz and Ruth, Boaz takes his place as the leader of this story, as every prospective husband ought to when seeking his own wife. He sits at the gate of the city of Bethlehem, seeking the kinsman redeemer, who stands before him in his way between him and his beloved, Ruth. And it just so happens that this man passes by Boaz. This passage is deeply ironic here when it says, Behold! In verse 1, as if we should be surprised that something like this has happened. Just another happenstance event where these things pave the way for God's loving kindness in the lives of his people. We know this now. 
Regardless, Boaz invites this sought and now found closer Goel, a man without a name actually in this story, literally called in Hebrew, certain one, which in Hebrew names have so much meaning. It's a, it is definitely worthy of note that he has no name. And he sits down at the gate and obliges Boaz in this. Boaz needs witnesses to start this legal transaction. In doing this, in verse 3, he relates something that we didn't know before. Verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. We don't know when or completely, but Naomi had apparently been selling some type of right to her husband's property in order to live in their destitute state. And the kinsman redeemer has the obligation, if he can, of buying back from her creditors whatever she has sold off for cash to live on. What's important is that this other nameless kinsman redeemer realizes that he has an opportunity on his hands. Land is not cheap at any time, but any more especially, now that the famine is over. Prices and demand has gone up, Boaz tells this nameless redeemer in verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, but in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders and my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know it, for there is one besides you, no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz shows something of his cunning in this speech. He makes this no-name Goel think of the parcel of land. That is, that's his demand, as if it were, or rather, think of the parcel of land as if it were in demand, even by him in a sense, saying, hey friend, if you don't buy this up, I'm going to take it. This is absolutely true, of course, but Boaz doesn't want the parcel of land. He wants Ruth, first and foremost. The bait works on this no-name Goel, and he says, I will redeem it. And it quickly becomes apparent that he is interested for financial reasons only. Why? Because there is a condition that Boaz rightfully brings up, which causes him to recoil. Verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So, to this proposition, however, the no-name Goel recoils, so much so that he repeats his denial in this deal three times in two verses, verses 6 and 8. I cannot redeem it for myself. I cannot redeem it by yourself, he says. Why does he recoil? Because of how the office of Redeemer works. At first, the no-name Goel thought he was just buying the property of an old, barren, childless, destitute widow, Naomi. This is a very good deal for him financially. Naomi would die sometime, and the property would be transferred completely to him, and he would only need to feed and clothe Naomi until she died. Really, a very good investment. But now, with Ruth's inclusion, he realizes that his money would go nowhere. That is, once Ruth had a son, all the money gotten from the field would no longer belong to him. It would belong to Ruth's son, the rightful heir. His money would go, not in his pockets, but into a bank in Ruth's son's name. That means that this no-name Goel would have to pay for, as a dependent, at least three people. Naomi, Ruth, and her eventual son, who would inherit the estate. And he would get nothing financially in return, thinking not morally, 
but merely financially, this is very, very bad investment philosophy. And this is how the no-name Goel is thinking, as we see in verse 6. I cannot redeem it. And why? Lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, this no-name Goel rejects his right and, what's more important, duty of redemption of the poor and destitute of his family because of his own greed. It shouldn't surprise us, then, when the people are pleased to see that Boaz takes up the right of redemption for himself, in verses 9 through 10. And the people at the gate are so pleased, they bless Boaz and Ruth, in verses 11 through 13. That should not surprise us. Boaz has accomplished fully and legally his mission. That is, he has redeemed Ruth and secured rest for her and a hope for Naomi in her barrenness. Let's go to the blessings that he bought from these, this accomplishment. So second, the blessings of Naomi and Ruth's redemption. Principally, although they could continue on forever, faithfulness, grace, and rest. The blessings of the people are first toward Boaz for, or rather, fruitfulness. That faithfulness should be fruitfulness. For fruitfulness, starting in verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Pointing back to Israel's two wives, Rachel and Leah, who God blessed with ancestors so numerous that they created an entire nation. This is a great blessing. And the blessings continue in this faithfulness, in this fruitfulness vein. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, which is an ancient name for Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is an appropriate reference to a very strange story in Genesis 38, and shows just how rare these types of kinsman-redeemer marriages were. Tamar, although uh, through questionable means, was twice widowed and had twins through a kinsman-redeemer, Perez and Zerah, is, a, is an understandable way of, or understandable blessing. This is the origin and descent of the clan of Judah, the clan of the kings of Israel, and of Boaz, and Jesus himself. And there were great blessings through Judah, and great promises that were to be given to Judah. These two blessings are prayers for fruitfulness. Children are blessings. Fruitfulness is the assumption of this marriage, not only ought this to be the assumption of our marriages, not trying to stave off childbearing, but instead having children if possible. But this ought to be the assumption of our marriage to Christ as well, brothers and sisters. If we are married to Christ, then we must bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. We must bear fruit in the world. We might bear into the world the fruit of our heavenly husband and our good deeds and our love and our prayers. That fruitfulness is a blessing and an assumption of this marriage. To this blessing, the women of the town bless Naomi next in verses 14 through 15. He shall be to you a returner of life and a sustainer in your old age. This is a prayer for blessing in grace. When Ruth and Naomi went away empty and bitter, they have returned to God, to life and to the grace of God for those who have offended him. Naomi is ultimately blessed by God and not cursed, even when she disobeyed God, for she repented. This is a blessing. This child is a blessing for her because of her repentance, because of the work that God has done in her 
by the grace of God. And now she gains all the blessings of that grace. And lastly, both Naomi and Ruth come to rest. Boaz marries Ruth and accomplishes the rest of marriage that Naomi calls, which Naomi calls marriage in Ruth 3.1. And Naomi has an heir and a daughter-in-law and a son-in-law whom she loves and who she can depend upon. This reminds us that Naomi famously said as she entered Bethlehem in chapter 1, I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. And now Yahweh gave her conception and she bore a son. Now Naomi is no longer empty, but full of blessings. Naomi in verse 16 becomes a foster mother to this child, Obed, and she was like a son, all right? And he was like a son to her. Naomi and Ruth have returned to Bethlehem and to Yahweh, their God, empty after all of their idolatry. And God had greatly blessed them in their return. God blesses those who return. Wholehearted return to God will bring true blessing. And this makes Ruth a wonderful introduction to First and Second Samuel. Israel is just as bad as the nations at this point in history. We've seen some of this even in Ruth, the defection of Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilion, the dangers of going out at night, the danger of Ruth in other fields, the heartlessness of the no-name Goel. Uh, all of these things are all contexts of the time of the judges. They tell us what it's like. All is not right in Israel, and there has been a great amount of idolatry infecting the area, and the same is true for First Samuel in the same time period. There was a great need of repentance, a great need to return to God, just as Ruth and Naomi have here. Israel and First Samuel at the end of the book of Judges are in the misery which their sin has created for themselves, but God is not done with them yet. Like Ruth and Naomi, he calls them out of darkness and brings them to himself as a loving husband and makes for them a home where he can provide for them. And just as importantly, provides a king and the promise of a son. This is where 1 Samuel continues the point of Ruth, as we see in verses 17 through 22, which contains the genealogy of Boaz and Ruth until David, the king, after God's own heart. It points to David, all of Ruth does. The final and full rest which Boaz had brought, that Boaz sought, was brought about only later. In this touching marriage redemption, it was not a final rest. Although there may have been rest in Boaz's household, Bethlehem and Israel are in what appears like chaos, as we will see far more in 1 Samuel. Even David was not the king, however, in 1 Samuel, the point in First and Second Samuel, is not that David came to be, but the promises of God came to be. We see this in his whole life as well, which is great strife. He was not the one that brought rest, even brought more strife to Israel. Israel had always been told to wait for the great king, and David was not the one to bring true rest. He whom David bowed before in Psalm 110 was that one. This is the point of Naomi and Ruth's redemption. God's appointed redeemer king was to come. This is coming to to the last section, section three, the point 
God's appointed Redeemer King. This king, I must say, was always in Israelite consciousness. And we'll see this in 1 Samuel. There will be a king which the people place upon their throne in rebellion against God. His name is Saul. But distinct from the people's selection is God's selection of a king. God promised a king to Israel as early as Genesis 17, 6, 16, and Genesis 35, 11, all saying this in common, kings shall come from you, Israel. God himself desired a king to be set over Israel in Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you may indeed set a king over you, says God. But with this caveat in Deuteronomy 17 that Israel ignores in 1 Samuel 8, as we'll see, you may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. God's chosen king, not the king of the people's choice, would be their savior. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Ruth and Boaz, was indeed a king chosen by God, a savior chosen by God. Israel sought to decide a king for God in 1 Samuel, for disaster came afterwards, of course. But God had been preparing his king, as we see here in Ruth, even three generations before his birth. God works in time, and he's far wiser than man, although he may call his work slow or quaint, some may say, or lacking in glory, or hard to discern in a pattern. Again, as we've been saying, God's providence may seem chaotic to us, but he is accomplishing his holy, orderly designs, as Ruth shows, in a straight line. Let us trust this, brothers and sisters, even as we see all the madness around us. His son is coming. The true king Christ is returning as he has promised. Yahweh is king over Israel during the time of the judges, however, but he intended to set upon his kingly throne David, the king after God's own heart, as we've said, who actually did save, as 1 Samuel 9 says, Israel from the nations, from their armies and idols. Yet David died, and there was a greater son of David to come. Even the Pharisees say this. Even the Pharisees say of this king to come, Matthew twenty-two forty-three. The Christ is the son of David. The great king was the Messiah, come from Judah, from Ruth, from David, therefore poetically called by the Pharisees, David's son. Yet Jesus replies in this text, Matthew 22, How is it then that David in the spirit calls the Christ Lord, calls, that, that is, calls the Christ, he does not say it there, Lord, saying from Psalm 110, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So that Jesus finally asks, if then David calls him, that is the Christ, his descendant, Lord, how is he son? How is he his son? And the Pharisees were so perplexed that they not only kept from answering this one question, but never asked him another question in his life. Why? Because they knew a king was to come, the son of David, but they could not see that this, that this son, that the king, which even David and all of ancient Israel look forward to, was no mere man. 
David, the greatest human king of Israelite history, could not call his own son Lord. The same word in Hebrew for master. For who is higher than the king in Israel? Brothers and sisters, there is only one answer. Only God is higher than the king in Israel. King David, the highest king of Israel, could only legitimately call one person and one person only Lord during his reign, God himself. This God-man, this Redeemer King of Israel, was to come from the tribe of Judah, says God in Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, and the genealogy at the end of Ruth is not a mere afterthought, but the reason, again, for the whole of Ruth. Like Boaz, Jesus stopped at nothing to accomplish our redemption, even laying down his own life to do this, shedding his blood and taking the wrath of God upon the cross so that so great was his love for the church, so great was his desire to redeem his people, the church. He deals with our obstacles. Although Israel and even you and I had sold themselves into slavery and idolatry, Christ used his precious blood to acquire us, to rule us, to defend us, and defeat all our enemies. He paid for our sins and redeemed us, whatever the cost, for his deep and everlasting love for us. See, only in Christ can our desire for a king, our desire for not government, but a person be fulfilled. Because it's not government we desire, but a wise person who loves us and loves us when he rules. The books of Samuel and Ruth especially, and all of Scripture generally as well, are the acts of Christ to redeem, to marry and rule with his love, his precious Moabite bride, the church. May we be fruitful in glorifying him, just For just like Ruth, we did not add to that accomplishment. Boaz, as we see in Ruth 4, did it all himself. Just like Ruth as well, we love and submit underneath him, our husband, our redeemer, and find rest in him. For he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So every day, as we enter into Samuel's books, let us look for that rest and for the man, God himself, who has accomplished it and will consummate it. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you that you have accomplished redemption. Lord, that all the things that stood in your way have been taken away. Lord, that you have, in your great love, even shed your own blood to do this. So great your love was for the church. And so great was your wisdom and your plan that it worked over generations and eons to bring it to us, that you were preparing for yourself a king in Israel, even David's greater son. We thank you, Lord, that this story is not a mere story, but history. It is true and has been accomplished by the work of Christ, that he not only was born and not only lived, but he died and not only died, but was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And Lord, we pray that we would look unto heaven, that we would look to not government, but to Christ, that we would look up and see him and wait for him, our king. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the plan that you have set before us, that you accomplished through Christ, and that through your Holy Spirit are bringing us to that great day of redemption. 
May you be glorified, Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.